in this new series that Pastor Tom has started for us from the book of Psalms called Certain Truths for Uncertain Times. And we're into Psalm chapter 3. So if you want to take your Bible, let's go over to Psalm chapter 3. And our message is entitled today, Confidence During Your Worst Adversity. Confidence During Your Worst Adversity. If you'll follow along as I read here in Psalm chapter 3, we're going to read this psalm as a whole, and then we're going to take a look at the individual parts of it that are really important for our lives today. Look at verse 1. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessings be upon your people. Now, as we continue this particular series in the book of Psalms, I want to draw your attention to the New Testament just for a moment. So if you have your Bible, put a marker here in Psalm 3, and let's go over to Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, and take a look at what the Apostle Paul says here. Because the big question comes up, how should New Testament saints read the Old Testament? And what benefit does the Old Testament have in relationship to us as New Testament saints today. And Paul answers that question in Romans 15 and verse 4, when he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so it has a teachable value to us, so that through perseverance, then now that perseverance has to do with our faithful obedience during times of adversity, and encouragement, this is, means, is reference to the fact that sometimes we become discouraged in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The encouragement of scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament text now, we might have, what's the last word? Hope. Hope. If there is anything that you derive from this entire series of the book of Psalms, I hope you walk away from it with renewed and steadfast hope. Renewed and steadfast hope. This is key. Now let's go back to Psalm 3. Each psalm of the Psalter is there to inspire your perseverance and to fill you with hope as you face adversity in the Christian walk. And that's especially true in Psalm 3. It was written by King David during some of the worst days of his life. The subscript of the psalm says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The psalm was written the morning after his initial flight from his own palace in fear for his life. There was a massive revolt going on in Israel against David and to rub salt into the wounds that was led by his own son, Absalom, a son that he desperately loved. As if this insurrection was horrible enough to compound David's pain is that it's led by a member of his own household. Not only did Absalom want the throne, but he is resolved to kill his father, the anointed king of Israel, in order to achieve this goal. So David's pain in this situation has multiple levels. First, there is the pain of the insurrection itself being denied as a king. Second, it's, the, it's painful for David because he knew that this was against God's chosen plan, so it was a deliberate rebellion against Yahweh. And third, 
This is a much deeper level. It was also deeply painful because he sincerely loved Absalom. He loved him. It was very hard to function in life when you love someone whose only intent is to do evil towards you. As a loving parent, you may know the heartache that accompanies the knowledge that your own child has turned upon you. Well, David understood that pain all too well, all too well. Now, in order to help you understand the bleak background of this particular psalm, we've got to take a look at a short family history behind David and Absalom. How did David and Absalom's relationship ever get to this low point? And the answer to that question is a little complicated, but it's understandable just like any family relationships, right? Family relationships are complicated. If you don't believe that, then you live by yourself. (laughs) Okay? Family relationships are complicated. And David's relationship with Absalom was very complicated. Absalom was David's third son. According to 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, Absalom was the son of David, and his wife, or Absalom's mother, was Makah in 2 Samuel 3, 3. Makah's father, that is, Absalom's mother's father, his grandfather, was a king as well. He ruled a kingdom across the Jordan from Israel, And his name was King Talmai of Gesher. Absalom was a very handsome man. He had long, flowing, dark hair. And he also had a sister, Tamar, who was known to be a very beautiful woman. And Absalom loved his sister. In fact, he loved his sister so much that he named his daughter after her. 2 Samuel 14, 27. And his daughter was also known as a very beautiful young woman as well. When Ammon, Absalom's half-brother, rapes his half-sister Tamar, which was Absalom's sister, Absalom became indignant. And he demanded that Ammon pay for this gross sin. Absalom waited two years. He waited two years for his father to act. And nothing happened. After waiting two years for David to punish Ammon, nothing occurred. His two years of suppression of his anger and hatred eventually overflowed. So Absalom concocted a party, a huge feast at his country estate, inviting David, but David, for some reason, could not attend. Ammon, his half-brother, did attend, and Absalom proceeded to do everything he could to get Ammon exceedingly drunk, which he succeeded in. And then Absalom had his servants murder Ammon. After this revenge murder, Absalom became afraid of David's anger. So he fled across the Jordan River to find refuge with his grandfather, King Talmi of Gesher. And he found refuge there. For three years, Absalom remained in exile. But due to the pressure of David's persuasive general Joab and a wise woman of Tekoa, they persuaded Absalom to return to Israel. And within two years, Absalom was back in good graces with his father David, even though he had killed his half-brother Ammon. Absalom showed himself at that particular point to be a very capable of doing public relations in Israel, and he became extremely popular among the citizenship. 
And in fact, at this particular point, I want you to take your Bible and let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15, in order to help you understand every word of Psalm 3, we've got to take a look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Now it happened afterwards that Absalom prepared for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a case to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, see, your words are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Now stop there for a moment. That's really a significant statement there in verse three. Do you see that? Why? Because basically Absalom is saying, just as David had not listened to him, that is Absalom, with his complaint against Ammon. So he's saying to everybody in Israel, the king's not going to listen to you either. He's not going to listen to you either. Verse four, then Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any case or judgment could come to me and I will justify him. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would stretch out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Stole the hearts away. Absalom was a very skilled we would probably say today, politician. Not sure exactly what party he belonged to, but I'm very suspicious. Very skilled politician. He knew how to win the people over with their confidence while at the same time undermining his father's credibility and authority. He was a very likable and personable young man. However, his anger towards his father robbed him of any respect that he would have for his father. Absalom despised David. He believed his father made poor judgments and would refuse to punish those who really deserved it. In his own mind, he honestly believed that he would make a much better king than David ever would be, which then brings us to Absalom's plot to overthrow David. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 15, and we pick up in verse 7, where it says, now it happened at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow before I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron, for your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Armah saying, if Yahweh shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve Yahweh. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he rose and he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Now 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the uh, Gilanite. And by the way, Ahithophel was David's trusted advisor. So basically, and it says here, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, who was offering the sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. So now you begin to see this unfold. Absalom gathers all of his co-conspirators at Hebron. And when one of David's trusted advisors, Ahithophel, decided to join Absalom against David, the conspiracy was finally complete. By the time news reached David, it was too late. And so he and his closest friends have to put his contrabines in charge of the palace and they have to flee. 2 Samuel 15, verses 13 and 14. 
Now imagine what was going through David's mind as he fled Jerusalem. One day he was king of Israel, and the next he was an outcast running from his own son. This had to be some of David's darkest days. Oh, the complex web of destruction that sometimes sin weaves in our lives and in our relationships. What do you do when it seems everything and everyone has turned against you? Do you withdraw? Do you become depressed? Do you give up? Do you accuse God? How do you handle the worst adversity in your life? Psalm 3 really is an insight into the way in which King David handled his worst days. We can learn a lot from this man and his trust in Yahweh. So let's go back to Psalm 3. In Psalm 3, in the first three verses, we can see confidence when adversaries increase. When David's enemies increased, in fact, verse 1 says, O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, it may surprise you that Psalm 3 is a psalm of lament. It is the very first psalm of lament in all the psalms. There are 38 additional psalms that are psalms of lament. And it is a psalm that points us to very high praise when adversity in our lives is at its peak. Let me ask you a question. The last time you experienced dark days was your natural tendency to give him praise. Let me ask you that question. That's a key question. David says in verse 1 here that there is an ever-increasing number of wicked that would love to destroy the righteous. David's natural instinct is to cry out to the Lord when many rise up against him. That's his natural instinct. For David, this insurrection turned into a personal assault upon him and his claim to have faith and trust in Yahweh. In fact, when you study the overall account of Absalom, you realize that Absalom really believed that Yahweh was on his side. He believed that David was an unjust man. He was convinced that he was doing God's bidding by getting rid of David. That's what he was convinced of. That's why this turned into such a personal assault upon him and his claim to have faith and trust in Yahweh. Turning to the Lord in the face of crisis is a central characteristic of a lament. It teaches us how to pray during terrible times of trouble. In fact, twice in verse 1, David emphasizes that his enemies are many. From a human perspective, he continued, his continued welfare was very, very bleak. His odds of survival are not good. David is fully aware of the danger of his plight, and this was a problem. Later on in Psalm 69 and verse 4, it says, Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies, what did, uh, what I did not steal, then I have to restore. You can see injustice written all over that. Injustice, what I did not steal, I ha- I'm the one that has to restore. There's David in this particular situation. In addition, this is the way the righteous pray when outnumbered and surrounded by trouble. When outnumbered and surrounded by trouble, just as David had many enemies, he also had many prayers. You can see that at the beginning of verse 2. Many are the sayings of my soul. When there are many enemies, he has many prayers. 
David understood that he was the Lord's anointed to rule Israel. He knew that in God's eyes, Absalom's insurrection could not last because it was not ordained by God. So he cries out to the Lord in the midst of his danger, surrounded by savage adversaries who want to put him to death because he was so confident in the Lord's faithfulness to him. And that, we're going to learn, did not come overnight. It was not something that all of a sudden was conjured up at that particular moment and all of a sudden, okay, now I have confidence in God. I didn't have it before. Now I've got it. No, 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 no. Third, the wicked will not alone threaten violence. They will also taunt the faith of the righteous. When wicked people turn on you, you'll find this to be true. Not only will they, they taunt you, but they, they will taunt your faith. The very fact that you say that you serve God. There's a sense of injustice in David's cry to the Lord, but the most painful thing is that his enemies attack his faith, saying there is no salvation for him in God. You can see that in verse 2. How can they say that? Because they believe that they are the ones on God's side. They're convinced of that. 2 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 18 reveals that Absalom believed that Yahweh was with him. 2 Samuel 17 and verse 14, that God was with Absalom. Often the very people that will attack you and your faith will claim that they are justified in what they're doing because they are actually doing God's bidding. Have you ever been falsely accused by someone who is saying, I represent the truth and I represent what God has said? That makes the accusation even more painful. Really, is that true? Absalom and his fellow conspirators believed that they were doing the right thing. That's why that they were convinced Yahweh was not on David's side, but he was on their side. He was on their side. Flip over just for a moment to Psalm 22, verse 7. Psalm 22, verse 7. Here's a psalm of David in verse 7. All who seek me mock me. They smack their lips. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue you. Let him deliver you because he delights in him. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. Evil men almost always claim divine justification in what they do. They do that. We saw that recently with our own governor here in the state of California, justifying abortion and trying to quote the Bible to justify abortion. Boy, he needs a good course on hermeneutics. (laughs) Text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, and he proof text. Terrible. That's what the wicked do. The wicked will grab a verse in the Bible that seems to be right, and they'll throw it at you trying to justify what they're doing. And in their own mind, it justifies what they're doing. But in reality, it is totally 180 degrees the opposite of what God says must be done. So you can see this. This is when enemies increase. Look at verse 3. Then verse 3 says, when the righteous rehearse God's purposes, you can see automatically David just kind of turning on a dime here. During your darkest days and darkest hours, you must train yourself to rehearse in your thinking the faithfulness of the Lord. That's what David does. Notice how David prays for protection based upon the Lord's faithfulness in verse 3 when he says this, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. So in response then, to taunts of the wicked about faith, the righteous recall their greatest confidence. Because David's enemies were attacking his faith, the tone of his prayer changes from one of lament to one of confidence in verse 3. David discovered great confidence in Yahweh's protection and care in sharp contrast to their attack on his faith. 
Where did this confidence come from? Well, in simple answer, it came from the relationship the Lord had already established with David long before the trial took place. It's rooted in David's previous walk with the Lord. David had learned faithful obedience in small things of life. Now he would need to apply faithful obedience in the big things of life. Same thing's true with you. You will have to learn faithful obedience in the small things of life before you're ready to handle the real big challenges of life. Take your Bible for a moment. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 6. Let's go back to Luke 6 and look what Jesus says about this. And he uses a, a, a wonderful illustration. You know this illustration. If you grew up in church, you know it from Sunday school, in fact. The only problem is um, there's a little song that goes with this illustration, and the song misses the whole point of the text. <laughs> That's one of the problems. You remember that little song, oh, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon sand. All right, well, that's true, but the song doesn't talk about the key idea. That's the problem. We don't learn it. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and went deep. Now, let me stop there. Back in Israel, and I mean, if any of you that have gone to Israel know this, it's very stony, sandy, rocky ground. To dig down deep is quite an effort. It's very similar to the ground around here. Once you stick that shovel in the ground, clink, you're going to hit a rock. And then you stick the shovel in the ground, clink, you're going to hit a rock again. And then it just digging this out is just really hard hard, laborious work to dig down deep. But he's like a man who is building a house, who dug down deep, verse 48 says, and laid a foundation on rock. So we're talking about digging down deep where you hit bedrock. This is pretty deep. When a flood occurred, the river burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So in other words, he took great care to dig down deep, which is analogous to a person being faithful in the small daily affairs of life, digging down deep. But, verse 49, the one who heard and did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. This is a lazy builder. And the river burst against it and immediately collapsed, and, and the ruin of that house was great. Verse 49 are the type of people we get in counseling, where a disaster has occurred in their life, their whole life is destroyed, Psh, wiped away. And you know why it's wiped away. Because they've spent years lazily disobeying the Lord in the small things of life. That's the reason why. They've been very lazy. They've not obeyed the Lord in the small things of life. So when they hit the big things of life, all of a sudden they expect to have great faith. No, there's no faith at all. They're digging into nothing, and their whole life is wiped away. Everything's wiped away. The reason why David in Psalm 3 is able to face this huge trial with Absalom and this massive insurrection is because he, through his life, had developed faithful obedience in the small things. He didn't always. He wasn't a perfect guy. There's lots of problems in David's life, no doubt about that. But he did love the Lord, and he was very, very committed to him. Too many people today use God as an emergency backup plan for their life rather than learning faithful obedience in the everyday affairs of life. There are three metaphorical characteristics of the Lord that David uses here when it comes to adversity. The first one has to do with the fact that Yahweh is a shield, the Hebrew term there means a small defensive frame used to block blows and assaults during an, an attack. Yahweh was his only defense, but he was all that David needed. David had been attacked before, and he knew the Lord would protect even during such a revolt as this. So Yahweh was all that was needed. Furthermore, he calls Yahweh my glory. My glory. The Hebrew term means heaviness, kavod, uh, importance, 
It's the same word that's used in Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory, kavod of God, the heaviness of God, the importance of God. And what was most important to David was not his own life or his throne or his military prowess. It was Yahweh. David's glory was found in him. That was something that could not be taken away from him. So the question then comes for you and I, what is the most important thing in life that really brings you glory? Can you say, Yahweh is my glory? In the midst of the worst adversities of life, Yahweh is my glory. Thirdly, David says this, Yahweh is the one who lifts my head. Lifts my head. The idea of honorable exaltation. In Genesis chapter 40 and verse 13, uh, there's a phrase that Moses used where it talks about Pharaoh lifts the head of the cupbearer. In this particular case, David says, Yahweh, who lifts up the head of the dejected and afraid above all others, No man will exalt David. Only God can do that. He's the only one who will ultimately exalt him. Psalm 46 and verse 10. Notice the song is chorus. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So David knew that Yahweh had not done all that he did for David to let him die in this insurrection. He knew that. Yahweh's purpose always prevail regardless of the might of the opposition. When you cry out to the Lord during your worst days, the substance of your prayer should be that his purposes cannot be thwarted by any circumstances or any person. His faithfulness is your shield. His character is your glory and ultimate aspiration. He alone will exalt you above your enemies and your circumstances. All of this is built upon his proven track record in David's life. So David rehearses this repeatedly throughout many of the Psalms. Now follow this with me. Go over to Psalm chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, David says, For it is you who blesses the righteous one. O Yahweh, you surround him with favor as with a large shield. And then later on in chapter 28 and verse 7, chapter 28 and verse 7, Yahweh is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts and with my song, I shall thank him. Yahweh is their strength and he is strong defense of salvation to the anointed. And then later on in verse chapter 62 and verse 7, 62 and verse 7, O God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. And then back in chapter 9 and verse 13, in chapter 9 and verse 13, be gracious to me, Yahweh, see my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. And then 27 and verse 6, 27 and verse 6, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with loud shouts of joy. I will sing, and I will sing praises to Yahweh. So you can see this reoccurring same thing going on. Yahweh is a shield. He's his glory. He is the one who lifts up his head during the darkest times of his life. Can you say that? So that's what happens, confidence, when adversaries increase. Now let's take a look at verses 4 through 5. Yahweh now answers prayer and sustains during awful adversity. In verses 4 through 6, David's prayer now turns from confidence to courage. Confidence in the Lord will always produce a fearless courage in life. In the first three verses, David addresses Yahweh directly, but now in verses four through six, he speaks about Yahweh to his readers. That's you and I. And so Yahweh now answers prayer, sustains during these 
Offal's adversity, prayer now is the cry of the helpless when Yahweh is our only hope. Silent prayer is good, but David stresses the importance of auditory prayer here. Hearing your own audible voice calling out to the Lord has a reassuring aspect that's undeniable. It reinforces your resolve and your confidence in him. This has not um, not only a personal benefit, but David speaks out, and it, it has an interpersonal benefit to others as well. So in... In the first verses, David speaks of the ever-present and growing danger of his adversaries, but in these verses, he describes the present deliverance in past tense. David is so confident. He uses the Hebrew past tense here. In Yahweh's deliverance, he speaks of it as if it's already happened in the past. That's how confident. You can, that's the reason why confidence is there. So, Furthermore, Yahweh provides his answers even when adversity remains a threat. Yahweh answers from his holy mountain. He says, this is a reference to Mount Zion. David recognizes that Yahweh dwells in a special way on his holy mountain. As in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6, that Pastor Tom talked about before, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then later on in Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, you can see a very similar statement on how David appeals. Actually, this is a psalm of um, Korah. But great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So, his holy mountain, his real authority and right to reign as king of Israel does not come from man, but from God on his holy hill. Confidence, then, in Yahweh's purposes enables the anxious and restless mind to sleep, verse 5 says. Look at verse 5 when he says, I lay down and slept. When faced with serious adversity, the weaknesses of your faith is revealed in your inability to sleep. David says he was able to sleep with his enemies encamped all around him. Insomnia can often be due to a lack of trust in the purposes of God. How is that possible? His mind rested in the faithful character of Yahweh. So a good night's sleep now refreshes and sustains righteous people despite the presence of evil. It was the Lord sustaining him. The Hebrew word for sustain here means to to supply the necessary support. So when Yahweh confirmed his covenant with Israel, he promises blessings will result in their obedience. Leviticus 26 and verse 6 says, I shall also give you peace in the land so that you may lay down with no one making you tremble. Look what David says in Psalm chapter 4 and verse 8 that we will talk about in our next message. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. Sometimes there are physical aspects to a lack of good sleep, like a lack of good sleep hygiene, too much caffeine, certain medications, eating too much, noisy room, too hot, too cool in the room, too much light, spouse who snores. But often the problem really is an anxious, fearful, restless mind, and this goes back to how much you trust the Lord in your life. How much do you trust him? Yahweh answers prayer and sustains during awful adversity. But you can see this too. Yahweh's protective provision encourages greater confidence. David now is being sustained through the night because he knows his Lord's character and he has great confidence in him. The better the righteous know God, the better they will sleep a deep, sweet sleep. 
Christians should be the most sound sleepers in the world. Should be. So the greater the threat, the greater courageous boldness will be in the righteous when confidence in Yahweh then is sustained. In verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. So confidence in the Lord's faithfulness and purposes will always produce courage and boldness. David's threat was real and immediate. There's a true story about George Smith. He was a daring test pilot during the 1950s. He may be somebody that Doug can remember. (laughs) Back when the sound barrier was first broken. (laughs) He could face anything until he had bailed out of a jet going 805 miles an hour. And though he survived, he was afraid of flying ever again. Then during his hospital stay, a nurse gave him an antidote to fear. He took her words to heart, and she said, Courage, she said, is knowing the worst and discovering that in God's world, the very worst can't really hurt you. That's true. David understood this type of courage because his confidence was in God. That's what gave him this courageous boldness and what God was doing in the world. This is a type of courage that makes the believer unstoppable. There's a story recorded for us in the martyrdom of Polycarp in the Apostolic Fathers as translated by J.B. Lightfoot. In the letter of the Spurnians, one of the seven epistles that the Spurnians attributed to Ignatius in the 5th century. We have recorded for us one of the most inspiring examples of courage in the history of the church. The aged Polycarp had been arrested by the Roman authorities and brought to the arena for execution in front of a huge cheering crowd. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear the earth and I will swear, swear the oath and I will release thee, Revile the Christ, Polycarp responded by saying, Four score and six years have I been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? It's a great question. David's confidence in Yahweh is the same that as of that of Polycarp. It resulted in unashamed boldness. Yahweh's then gracious presence and provision is the antidote to fearfulness. Verse 6, David's focus is upon the character of God. When a believer is assured of God's presence and his provision, there's no longer any place for fearfulness. And even though the enemy is all around readying the attack, there is no fear in those who are on God's side. All this time, David was lamenting, praying, sleeping, pondering. His adversaries were taking their positions all around him. He knew that they were there. And if given the opportunity, they would strike him down, yet there is no fear in him. None. That's that courage that Yahweh sustains. Finally, in verses 7 and 8, then there is complete trust in God's deliverance. Complete trust in God's deliverance. This psalm has begun with a lament in verses 1 through 3, a direct address to Yahweh, and then it turns to addressing those who hear this prayer in verses 4 through 6. And then finally, in verses 7 through 8, it returns to a direct address and petition to Yahweh, which is a typical format for a lament. Deliverance is only possible with God. A prayer calling upon Yahweh to arise and engage the enemy on behalf of the helpless righteous. David uses an anthropomorphism to call Yahweh to arise. Now, Yahweh doesn't literally have to arise, but it's an anthropomorphism here, as if the Lord is sitting nearby observing these awful events and not responding. He wants the Lord to save or deliver him from impending destruction, and he's requesting that Yahweh spring into action on his behalf. The word that's used to arise here is stated in the imperative. It really isn't a call for swift and immediate action. 
which now balances his lament. In verses 1 through 3, we're arising, where many were arising early in verses 1 through 3 against him. Now he calls Yahweh to arise. Yahweh needed to rise and defend him. David knew that he could not fight and win this battle without the help of the Lord. There's a prayer calling upon Yahweh to deliver the righteous who cannot save themselves. The second imperative in verse 7 is Yahweh to save me. David wants Yahweh to save him from ruin, destruction, harm. While believers are saved eternally by the atoning work of the Lord, there are many times that you may need to cry out for temporal salvation. Their eternal states are secure, but their earthly situation is in doubt. You can cry out to him in prayer asking for temporal deliverance because he cares about you and the temporal condition that you're in. Too many believers live as if they believe that the Lord cares little about their earthly troubles, but nothing could be further from the truth. Call upon him to arise and to save. This does not guarantee that he will always deliver you from discomfort or loss, but he will always answer according to, to your good and his glory. He will always do that. Such prayer of faith contains confident expectation, yet Yahweh will hear and ultimately deliver. David didn't doubt that the Lord would rescue him and save him, but as I said later or earlier, such confidence in the Lord did not just instantly appear in David's life. It was later long before things went bad. He had established a daily trust in the Lord long before this insurrection was known. You are building your confidence or lack of confidence in the Lord every day by the choices that you make. The reality of your confidence in him will be revealed when, not if, serious difficulties and adversaries arise in your life. When verse 7 says, For you have struck my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered their teeth of, of the wicked... It is a confirmation that the Lord has taken his stand on your behalf, and he has dealt a death blow to the enemies of righteousness. Shattered teeth mean a shattered life. Well then, real deliverance is always from Yahweh. Verse 8 ends this psalm with a vow, as in most laments. This verse expresses the praise that David wants to give Yahweh when he is back in his sanctuary on the holy mountain, this final verse concludes with the main lesson of the entire psalm. What is that? When the righteous are surrounded by adversaries, they may confidently pray for deliverance because the Lord's plan for them can never be frustrated or changed. Never. This is the third time in a short psalm The idea of deliverance is mentioned. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Our Lord is a saving God, and David knows him as his only hope and salvation. That's why we started off with Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, in order that we might have hope, right? Hope. There is no salvation for him in God, his enemies were saying, but David knows that true deliverance will only come from Yahweh, From David's perspective, his enemies are already vanquished. They are like wingless birds trying to fly, legless people trying to walk, armless swimmers trying to swim. They can accomplish nothing against David if God does not will it. Can accomplish nothing. Augustine. One day, many, many years ago, I read everything that Augustine ever wrote, and it's massive. But in his book, The City of God, he says, The sins of men and angels do nothing to impede the great works of the Lord, which accomplish his will. For he who by providence and omnipotence distributes to everyone his own portion is able to make good use not only of the good, but also of the wicked. He can make great use of the wicked. So such prayer focuses on the faithfulness of the character of God to always provide and sustain his people despite opposition of the wicked. The Apostle Paul's words help us understand this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 where 
Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? This is David's perspective. David's confidence in the Lord's deliverance was so strong that he was able to sleep sound with his enemies encamped all around him. Let me close with this. An old seaman once said, in fierce storms, we must put the ship in certain position and keep her there. This is what you must do. Reason cannot help you. Experience gives you no light. Only a single course is left to you. You must put your soul in one position and keep it there. You must stay upon the Lord and come what may, winds, cross seas, thunder, lightning, frowning rocks, roaring breakers, no matter what, you must hold fast your confidence in God's faithfulness and his everlasting love in Christ Jesus. What's the end of the story? The end of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 18 in verses 9 through 18, that to David's chagrin, the son that he dearly loves dies. It's bizarre. His long black hair that he was so proud of gets, him, gets entangled in an oak tree, and he is now murdered by Joab or killed on the battlefield by Joab. What a terrible end. Sadness and grief. But the Lord did preserve his servant. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Lord, what a great psalm, a psalm of lament. It is a psalm with dark tones, but it is a psalm with bright hope because Yahweh is our confidence. And when our confidence is firmly rooted in him, then we will, above all others, be the kind of people who will be fearless and courageous no matter what happens in this world. This is certain truth for uncertain times. So, Father, may we be committed and faithful to him in the small things of life. This we pray in Christ's name.